HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Dana Cowan, one of America's foremost authorities on food, wine, style, and design. We'll talk to Dana about restaurants, chefs, sommeliers, trends, and of course, food and wine. We'll taste a vintage Napa Cab for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Dana Cowan recently served as editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine for over 21 years. She is an author, lecturer, tastemaker, mentor, talent scout. I leave anything out? I think that's a really good, that's good. Okay. Hyphenates. Dana was inducted into the James Beard Foundation for Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America in 2012. Her book, Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, Learning to Cook with 65 Chefs and Over 100 Recipes, nice short title, <laughs> teaches a bad cook like Dana how to become a good one. She also hosts Speaking Broadly, which is a program that we'll talk about a little later on right here on Heritage Radio Network. And Dana is also a board member on City Harvest, Wholesome Wave, and Hot Bread Kitchen. Still there? Yep. Okay. All right. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Dana. Very happy to be. I'm happy to start a show with a glass of wine. This there is, you go. This I, is new to me. I twisted your arm and it didn't go far. Your arm. <laughs> you took it quickly. <clears throat> All right, Dana. I want to 
I want to set up who you are to the audience. You have a full refrigerator of experience. So what I want you to do is take a few minutes, don't go on forever, and tell us about your journey in food, life, and wine that got you to where you are today, which is on my show, and you also do a show here, plus other things, you know, which you'll cover. So start wherever you want. <laughs> um, I start at college, perhaps, because the, uh, the journey into media uh, started when I was at Brown University, and I took writing classes, and my professor is the one who led me to my very first job at Vogue magazine. And really, since then, my career has been like a, a daisy chain, you know, interlinked and flowery. Very happy. So I... Uh, graduated from college and immediately went to Vogue magazine, where my the highlights of my wine career began because I edited uh, I edited the wine column there, and it was unreadable when I got it, and it was unreadable when I finished it, and the reason for that uh, unrecognizable uh, all the way through all the way through, and the reason for that is not um, just my own lack of skill, uh, which I. <clears throat> would cop to, but also the author's wife was the um, the photo director at the magazine. And every time I would go to her and say, you know, I'd love to change these words, and I think it might be clear if we talked about it this way, and I really want to make this exciting. And she would say, I don't think Martin would like that very much. <laughs> and that was the end of it, honestly. Right. And and so I, I gave up, and uh, that was the beginning at, at Vogue, and I went to House and Garden, where I uh, was the managing editor eventually and uh, wrote stories, some stories about um, food, some design, some entertaining, some style. And interestingly, I don't know why all of my highlights are really lowlights, but <laughs> my um, most memorable moment there was editing uh, an entertaining column, and I'd been told that you're supposed to have the recipes tested. I'd never heard of such a thing. And you know, say, someone gave me a recipe tester to send these recipes to, and I did, and I got them back. I'm like, awesome, this is great, just publish them. But um, she, the recipe tester had actually inserted mistakes into a holiday meal. Oh so, right, it was ruining a $200 roast. So I've clearly never forgotten so that. So if you followed that recipe, you, like you, you ruined, said, you ruined a 200 You really ruined it. was Terrible, wow. um, and I went from <laughs> I went from House and Garden, um, House and Garden folded, and I, I got another job at Connie Nast, which is at a magazine called Mademoiselle, which doesn't exist any longer. Um, there is no relationship between that job and anything I do today, and that's why that <laughs> job lasted exactly one year. Um, I worked for some truly brilliant people, but Zit Stays Boys completely not my thing, and I was lucky enough to have a connection to. Food and Wine and American Express Publishing, which published Travel and Leisure, Food and Wine, and Departures. My boss at House and Garden was there as the editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure. This is the daisy chain part. So this is why anyone who's trying to figure out what they should do in the world, be really nice to everybody you work with. Right. Uh, because Don't say bad things in elevators. Ever. Right. Or bathrooms. Right. Um, also, Also very important. Um Yes, we're speaking from the woman's side, you're always in a stall. Right. But for men, I can see why that would be necessary to say. Right. And um, and then I got this extraordinary job 
as uh, the manager, well, the executive editor at Food and Wine. I had that job for six months and then got the, the top job. And I knew very little about food. I knew nothing about cooking because I wasn't a cook. Um, I knew very little about wine because I wasn't a drinker. You grew up in New York City, right? I grew up in New York City with... Does that mean you eat out more than, let's say, somebody who lives in Wichita? I I do now. Um, When I was growing up, we ate at home pretty much every night because we had a housekeeper who, you know, really essentially did boil a bag dinners. I mean, the, you know, my food, was, the vegetables were all boiled, the meat was all um, in a grill pan, and um, there was never an ounce of flavor. So, I no, I had no background for this job at all, but I knew a lot at that point, 10 years in, about editing and about consumers and about um, what people wanted. And so they just believed in my visual and storytelling skills and figured I could pick up the rest. And um, and indeed, if you eat from the test kitchen every single day, I mean, I would sit at my desk and at least three times a day either go into the test kitchen or in the later years when I was just so busy I couldn't go to the bathroom, <laughs> stalls or not, and... Um, you know, I, I was stuck. People would bring me food. So plates of food would arrive on my desk. Um, so you learn. And I also went out to restaurants all the time. And one reason I didn't go out to restaurants so much when I was growing up in New York is that it wasn't a restaurant moment in New York. The restaurants were all French, which was great. But every, restaurants weren't entertainment. They were where you would go out for a birthday or, you know, my parents went out to restaurants. Right. Well, I want to get You'll into get that. You'll get there. Um, so, finish up. So Yeah, and so um, I was at Food & Wine for 21 years, as you said. Truly the greatest team of people. I My bosses were incredible. The, the magazine was a pleasure. But over 21 years, I'd reinvented the magazine, done a, redesigned it or rejiggered the columns or whatever. The um, Started the... Uh, changed the books program, took on the website, uh, you know, added all these fantastic pieces. So I went there and all I was doing was editing a magazine. But at the end, um, it was books, web, social. Right, the whole um, industry changed. The whole thing, which was awesome. And if you didn't pivot, you were left behind. But that was all, I mean, honestly, each year or every two years, I would add another way to express the magazine and express the core vision and mission of the magazine. And that made it, so much fun, but uh, right now, I would say that, of course, media is very challenged, and one of the things that's challenging is um, to create a unique product that is ad and consumer-supported, rather than something that's supported just by scale. So I left Food & Wine, and in went... In 2016. In 2016. Fairly recently. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and then I spent a year at a restaurant group called Chef's Club. Chef's Club originated when I was at Food & Wine because Food & Wine uh, was working with the uh, St. Regis in Aspen to come up with an idea for a restaurant because Food & Wine has an event in Aspen every single year. So I I went to Aspen 22 years in a row, which was... That was the Aspen Food & Wine Festival, which was sponsored by... Food and wine. Or? Well, it's a, it was the food, it was the food and wine classic in Aspen, That's what and um, so we controlled every aspect of it. We um, 
we got the sponsors, we did the content. Um, every single aspect was controlled the by food and wine. The attendees, the chefs, the wine people. All yes. Right. And um, food wine participated in 16 different festivals, but that is the only one, the one in Aspen, that we completely uh, did every single right. element of it ourselves. But because of that, we had this fantastic relationship with the hotel in Aspen. Um, it was an advertising request to come up with what we could do in that restaurant. And um, Christina Gervich, who is the publisher at the time, um, and, and I, but largely because of Christina, came up with this idea to have a roster of chefs and dishes from a variety of chefs on the menu. And the, idea. Uh, the owner of that hotel uh, loved the idea so much he bought the idea and decided to build it out and then brought me over to build out this brand that's around chefs. So I thought, oh my goodness, this is such a great transition because it's food and wine, but not food and wine. And so it's for business, it's food bi- and wine, yeah, it's, interaction with And just the all the chefs that I love right. and I would create new menus and I would create special events and I would create branding. And then we had all of these big ideas because you could do a chef's club market or you could do. So are you already talking about that it's in New York or? So when we, um, when, so it still exists in Aspen. Right. And when it was bought, the, um, the next step was to create a flagship in New York City that I got to participate in sort of building, but it was really the vision of this uh, gentleman, Stefan de Botts, and Louise von Schrichten, who um, also worked on the launch of it. So I came after they had launched it and spent a year working with them and you know, bringing these great chef ideas to life. And then I realized uh, as much as that was really enjoyable, it was a very small sliver of what I was accustomed to doing because I was accustomed to operating in, you know, five different mediums and working on sales and working on content and working on marketing, branding. And so um, I leapt out and now I am, in fact, doing a little bit of all of the things that I'm accustomed to doing. Um, so I'm doing some consulting. I'm doing um, Speaking Broadly, which you very kindly mentioned, which I love, which is the which podcast. Which we'll talk about yep. towards the end so people remember. Thank you. And, uh, and I'm also developing uh, a new media idea that either will be so genius, you're going to be so happy that I talked about it on the show, or it will be a complete dud. Like, it's not going to be so in the middle So are you going to talk about it I on can, the show? I can talk about it a little bit. All right, bit. we'll get to that in a minute. But okay. I've been following you on Instagram, and in the last two weeks, you've been running around pretty good. Yeah. So you're certainly not sitting around. No. <laughs> All right, so let's get into a bunch of things. You know, obviously, I want to talk to you about food and wine. Um, but remember, this is a wine show. Yes. So anywhere you could skew to wine, <laughs> you know, don't don't be bashful and all of that. <clears throat> so the first thing I wanted to ask you is because I think you were sort of at the genesis of this. You just alluded to it. And I think it's an important part of your career in the magazine. It's sort of that time. The question is, when and how did food not become something to eat? But that experience you were talking about, you know, when did you see that? Were you part of it? Had you feed it? I mean, tell me a little. That sets a lot of things up for me. So in I went to Food and Wine in 1994. The Food Network launched in 1993. 
And the Food Network, I Was think, that a big deal? Being at a magazine, it's like, what is this? Or Oh, I thought, I mean, the Food Network was great. And it took a while for the Food Network to collect steam. So though it did launch then, it had a small idea. Yeah. And it really didn't. Um, get rolling and capitalize on you know the the star shafts and really get its identity for a couple of years. But it's just to say that the ground is really fertile for chefs at that moment. And one of the things that had interested me about going to Food and Wine was taking chefs and making an entire lifestyle around them. So. You know, if you are going to get a recipe, it would be from a chef. It would be a doable, it would be a home recipe. But the chefs were already becoming stars. And so that was happening, and the world was ready for more. I, I, I mean, it was. And I definitely feel that Food & Wine helped feed it because we were the first ones to really build lifestyle stories around the chefs. And then when, um, you know, Bon Appetit switched editors um, a bit later... And, you know, Bon Appetit has a different take, but the same worldview. Like, Bon Appetit and Food and Wine share the worldview that chefs are awesome and what they do is worth following and that they really change the way you eat, the way you see. And now, as time has gone on, I think that they're changing the world because they're politically motivated, they're socially motivated, and um, they've changed They've changed every day of my life because there's so much more variety. There's so much more curiosity around food. So one has the opportunity to eat, you know, laksa in Brooklyn or, um, you know, your your choices of food excitement is pretty vast now. Yeah. Would you say that's happening a little with sommeliers and wine? Like restaurants used to be temples. Yes. Chefs became rock stars. They became, you know, what you said. Sommeliers are sort of influencers and rock stars now. I mean, are they having their time? I mean, I think the the Psalms have had their time for the last 10 years, I'm going to say, 7, 10 years. And part of it, I think, is because of the tasting menus. So if you go to a restaurant and you order a tasting menu and you order a wine pairing to go with it, the person who's at your elbow through the entire meal... The servers slide in and out, but the psalms are your storytellers, and the psalms are talking about you know the way in which what's in your glass you know marries with what's on the plate. But they're also very entertaining. I find that psalms have often, not always, very engaging, um, cheerful personalities. Do you find that? I do. I think uh, they're very passionate. I think most of them are very. Um, well educated on the subject a lot of them are certified at different levels and i think they're there because they want to be there and you're serving people so it's a personality thing right so they're they're in the chefs don't have as much face time exactly with the customer a a chef chefs to succeed um it helps for them to be mediagenic or you know consumer friendly but the sums have to be Yes. They're on the floor. Yes. They they have an inbred sense of hospitality that has to come to the table every day. Um, and just watching the growth of the sommelier personalities, you know, the people that you would know Robert Bohr was on the floor and you would go to the restaurant because you want to see Robert Bohr on the floor. And then uh, a guy like a Patrick Cappiello, tattoo-laden, you know. But uh, as you say, energetic and passionate and fun and yeah. they really they're there to bring you on a journey and in the same way that you would put 
you know, like omakase for the Japanese, like let the chef decide, or tasting menu, let the chef decide. The idea that you would put yourself in the hands of a psalm and let them decide for you, I mean, to me, that is by far the best way to go. I agree. I think you may have answered part of this question, but to stay on the wine thing, how important to you, to the magazine, how important is wine to food? How important is wine to a restaurant? I think you sort of addressed that part. And how important is it to entertaining? You know, one of the things that I realize is the masthead was food and wine, but I think wine got 15% of the coverage, <laughs> whatever. I mean, that's not the point. But, it was actually, but, but in your mind, how does wine play with food and entertaining and restaurants and all of that? I think uh, wine is essential. Um, I think that in in food and wine, interestingly, we could never do enough wine coverage. The wine issues, we did two wine issues a year, so all wine. And people loved them because the wine and the food went together, which was great. The wine and travel went together inextricably. So the destinations wine, always very successful. And... I think people could not get enough of being educated about wine, but not preached to about wine. So we took the wine very seriously. Letty Teague was the first wine editor um, now with the I Wall Street Journal at I think. Food and Wine, and she was brilliant. Is still mm. brilliant, but she brought a sense of humor and her uh, uh, an educated palate and um, a unique point of view. And then Ray Isle and Megan Craigbaum, two extraordinary wine editors very interested in the um, the broad appeal of wine and also the sort of the narrow appeal. And at Food & Wine, we were very focused on um, serving both clientele, that we were not only going to write about wine for snobs, and we weren't only going to write about wine for people who want to spend $10 and under. So listen to this question. I'm going to read it to you verbatim. Did you ever feel food and wine had an elitist air to it, <laughs> covering expensive restaurants, things like the Aspen Wine and Food Festival, and extravagant destinations? So you answered that you did that. That was interesting. But you made a point to also cover, you know, Ray would make sure to cover. Yes, we were... Um, we were very... Uh, Ray would probably say, and he would laugh to hear... You said, and so would Megan. I, you know, I put the brakes on a lot of very snobby coverage because the question was, um, who can buy this, and are we the right place to learn about it? So, is the person who really, you know, certain things are iconic or cultish, and you need to tell people just because they're culturally important. But it's not to me that wasn't where the service was. So we always had an argument. I want to get your opinion. We always had an argument about what the fair price was. So I drew the line at. $12 for a long time. And Ray was like, if I could just have 15. I'm like, no. I'm telling you, when I talk to people, the food and wine reader is there at 10. And he's like, I disagree. So we had this fight for the longest time. How recently? I mean, well, was that money ago, threshold? So it was, it's climbed up a few bucks. It probably, has, but what but would you say? Still, well, one of my questions that I'm going to ask you is I want you to recommend a bottle of wine, 15 bucks, around 15 bucks, because I have kids in the 20s, mm. and they're going to a wine party. They don't want to bring a crappy bottle. They can't afford, you know, an expensive. So what's good in that area? So we'll handle that. I think now 
I'd say twelve to sixteen bucks. Yeah. So so Ray was always kind of creeping it up, and and basically. You know, if I c- could get to 17, he was happier. And then we had an argument at the 30 to 40 dollar price point. But that's another market. I feel like it's another market. I feel like the Food Mind Reader probably was inter- interesting. But I, I, this is a compliment. I think your brilliance and success was understanding your reader and audience and publishing to them. You know, not what you want. This is, you know, that's very telling, the pricing on the wine. I think wine actually, and the same with food, right? If you fall in love with the subject and you always want to write about or talk about um, the in crowd, you're usually exclusive, right? And so it's what's, if you are writing about wines you want to drink, that's kind of awesome, but it's probably not a million people. And we had an audience, and we had a very large audience. But you had asked questions about um, wine and entertaining. I think, to me, the fascinating thing about wine and entertaining is that what I look for is the best value wine. Like, I will never entertain with uh, for a crowd, right, for 20 and above. I'm always going to look for a bottle that is... 15 and below because I want people to to like drink well but I don't want to be counting the bottles if I'm entertaining for 10 and below then my menu is going to be more curated right so if I'm having 20 and more the menu is so varied that my bottle is going to have to hit that mid-range of matching, so it doesn't have so much personality. It has a, it right. has good point. Um, a universal donor personality. Right. Like it can go with everything that's out Complimentary, there. Complimentary, not it, overpowering. Exactly, not over, right. And you're not paying attention to the one. Right, it, you're it really just like fits in it, seamlessly. Exactly. So good way to put not it. a big personality, but if it's ten people and under, and then I'm creating like a perfect meal, I care much more about um, the you know the price point can go up. And the pairing can be a little more finely tuned. But Ray, one of my favorite things that Ray ever said was 80% of the pairings you make are going to be fine. 10% of them are going to be genius. And 10% of them are going to be catastrophic. And that's not bad. So, so that gives you a really wide range. One in 10 failure. You know, that's not bad. 90% almost success rate. Exactly. Um, you talked about... People would bring food up to your desk. They had test kitchens and all that. You know, I know all the food magazines, tested recipes, had kitchens. I'm more curious, did food and wine have a wine cellar or a wine room? Absolutely. I mean, what was that like? It was one of my um, proudest achievements at the time was... Was it just the closet or you built up a little wine space? We, over time, we actually created a beautiful wine room. We took over what had been... um, a dining room and turn it into a, a wine room. It was an enormous chore, though, because every single wine that came to the magazine had to be unboxed, cataloged, um, and then either put for ready for a, a tasting. Um, and the wine... A lot of, t- lot of work. It was a, lot, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of wine. And, of course, it was the highlight of any tour. People would come, and they'd see the cubicles, and they'd see the art department, and they'd see the kitchen... The kitchen is fine, but it was still a kitchen. Right. Uh, 
the wine room, however, very special. And there was a lot of wine, but there was also spirits and right. you know other other things. So that was the highlight of any tour. And now that food and wine, well, food and wine's moving to Birmingham, but right. the New York, um, sorry, the New York office also has a wine room in their new location at Time Inc. downtown. Interesting. I was hoping that you know maybe it would be a nice room. A beautiful. All right, so. This is kind of a big question, and I think you lived through it and get into it any way that you want. And the question applies to food and wine, probably, you know, a bigger way to food. But, and I've asked this to a lot of people how has the internet and social media changed food and wine as we know it? I mean, when you jumped into the game, it was one thing. In the intro, and when you started talking, you talked about having your hands on five, seven different important things. So tell me how it's changed. I mean, how you write, uh, subscriber. I mean, it, it, what, what effects? I mean, we can go on for hours, but <laughs> tell me your initial thoughts on. Well, the ability to uh, see what chefs are cooking and what psalms are pouring and what people are drinking, what people are eating has indeed completely changed the world. I think that it means that ideas are cycled through much more quickly in the food arena. So if you have, uh, you know, um, something that is beautiful and visual, people find out about it immediately. People are learning with their eyes instead of with their taste buds. So it means that more people are aware of trends. So accessibility, visual, regularity. You could do stuff every day. Oh, you certainly could. Right. Um, I think that... All good so I, I far? I, well, I think that the way that the social world flows, most of what gets tons of likes are gooey and rich and drippy and... Um, Extreme, and I think that that makes it hard for foods that are not extreme to um, find their footing. And I think that's a little disappointing and actually quite interesting. So, Dave Chang started something that's an ugly food hashtag, and I think that's great. You know, the idea that everything has to be beautiful, I think, is very disappointing. And I think that there will be some kind of backlash to it. It can't be that huge because if it's not attractive to look at, like, are you going to like it? Like, you can't taste it. So if it sounds good, maybe, I don't know. I I think that there will be some backlash. Um, Wine is really interesting because I think it allows people to discover more. I think discovery is a big part of social media and the Internet. Absolutely. and Well, chefs are influencers. Sommeliers are influencers. Right, and you want to know what they're drinking. Yeah. And you want to be able to but have you, what that guy that had. was one of your missions early on, to follow the chef out of the restaurant. Absolutely. And, all of that. and in fact, I mean, to that point, we actually followed the personalities. So it was the chefs, <clears throat> and then the Psalms, and then the mixologists, and then the farmers. And then, you know, so over time, because we were interested in the people, and I'm still very interested in the people, the people are the ones who lead the movements, the people are the ones who are sharing the ideas. And so it's the people that, you know, one is interested in. Right. Um, well, that's a different part of social media because the magazine had to have 
an online offering and like you said the immediacy and the visuals and all that but then you have the user side the chef instagram sites twitter sites and all of that I mean, that's changed. And people constantly are in restaurants taking pictures of everything. They're forgetting why they're there. I'm very... It's the good shot, not the good meal. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I'm guilty of that myself. I mean, uh, you, you don't want to sit within, you know, 10 feet of me because you're going to get the light shine from my um, yeah, camera. Yeah, you, you almost get a pass for uh, that. You know, you're, you're, like, certified, <laughs> you know? But I think that the, the other thing... Um, that has changed a lot, not just with social, but with recipes being available online is that they're commodified, commoditized. So if you're looking for uh, a mac and cheese, you know, you don't need to wait for food and wine to come um, or Bon Appetit or Sever. So the magazines, the print versions of them need to provide something else. And the digital versions need to um, give you that service that you need, like a really great mac and cheese or a really great So strategically, fajita. they have to be different presentations, the the hard magazine and the digital offering. Yes. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, you had a shift to that at some point, you know, it became important how you looked. Well, what was great was that Food & Wine had thousands of recipes. So we always used to joke that Every um, every day you could do a new five recipes. They would be new to the user. They weren't necessarily new to the brand because right. they were things that had been created ages ago that still were very valuable. Like a great chicken noodle soup is not going to be less good right. um, necessarily unless it had a lot of ingredients and right. a lot of steps. But um, We're going to have to take a break in a couple minutes. But before we do, I want to just hit you with two more questions. Um, and one is I want to get your take on food trends. But what comes up on my show a lot, I have a lot of women sommeliers and women wine people on, and we talk about women in the business. And New York's been a good place through the years, women in wine, women in management, um, certified sommeliers and all that, very competitive. What about in the food industry? I mean, I've sort of had firsthand discussions with sommeliers, but is that the same with chefs and women. Where are we at with that? Is it still a tough putt or it's getting better? I think that uh, the women have, have a lot of visibility in the wine world. Fantastic sommeliers. Um, so incredible winemakers. And that is fabulous. In the chef world, it's still a fight. <clears throat> there are incredible women chefs and they get some recognition, but if you had them sitting in this chair, they would say that, you know, it's a struggle. It's a Why struggle. Why is it tougher in food than wine? I think it's because the Psalms aren't raising their own money necessarily, right? So they're working Different for circumstance somebody. circumstance and situation. Right. And so often what the, chef, the chefs will say, I, um, you know, if I was trying to raise money to open a new restaurant, that was hard because people just don't you know, don't give me the money. I mean, I can't remember the exact story, but someone made up a um, a male counterpart, a third partner who was a guy, the other two were women. And every time, you know, they sent an email, the funder would respond to the guy, but not the woman. And it's just an extraordinary amount of sexism. Well, the old Psalm story is the woman Psalm would go to the table and the old guy would say, send the Psalm over. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. similar, um, and not the respect. 
deserve. And I think that the, in terms of the women uh, chefs, beyond the money, um, you know, it's, sometimes it's a question of style and what gets the most PR can be something that's bombastic or extreme or, you know, really stands out. And sometimes women cook that way and sometimes they don't. Right. And so if you, you know, want to grab the spotlight, then you need spotlight food. But if, you're, if you don't want to create spotlight food, then you have a bit of a, you can have a challenge there. And as unfair as that is, having been on the press side of it, I know you need the hook. Like, give me the, tell me what the hook is. Like, tell me what you're doing that is completely different. And of course, it's, you never want it to be because it's a woman. So, right. It's pretty complex. Um, but I think that more women are um, rising through the ranks. More women are chef de cuisine. More women are, uh, more women chefs are running the kitchens. And I think that's a really good thing for this world. And hopefully, you know, continuing. Right, before we take a break, I can't let you leave without telling me a little about your opinions or thoughts on food trends right now. Are there any trends that are happening, that have been happening, that are worth keeping an eye on? I mean, what, what resonates with you? I'm very interested in um, the Mexican, the uh, just blasting open of everything Mexican. You know, you turn around and... That you, Noma thing, the Renee... Well, Renee would definitely I mean, going to Mexico. That was a pretty blow-it-open thing, right? I th- Yes, I think he was right on right on target there. No matter what city I went to, people would give me a list, and at the top of that list would be like, this amazing taco place! I, anywhere. I happen, anywhere. It didn't matter. L.A., right. of course, that would be obvious, yeah. but L.A., San Francisco, um, Charleston, Austin... Taco, 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 um, and some Mexican food. The Korean um, does not show a sign of abating, which I think is fascinating. Uh, I'm really interested in the Chinese noodles and this sort of the the noodle expansion game. There's a lot of um, incredible noodles. And also, in New York City in particular, the amazing sushi restaurants that are you know, Japanese. I mean, today, this week, new ones are opening. An American is, chef that studied in Japan is opening up this week. I mean, very cool stuff. Very. It's. I, I think it's great. A lot of um, a lot of n- nuances in the Japanese places that are opening. But I think that that's really, really interesting. And the food waste, which had been a very tiny little um, blip on the screen, is growing stronger. Which Dan Barber is like Dan. a big advocate well, of that. Well, Dan had um, the wasted pop up in 2014, and then he did another uh, pop up in London this year where he right. used uh, waste products um, <clears throat> from fish and vegetables and created fantastic dishes. What he said that was interesting about that was that when he was collaborating with chefs on those dishes, usually the chefs were taking something from their own menu. You know, it was not as though they had to recreate something. But chefs are thrifty because the cost of um, ingredients is very high. So they don't really want to waste very much. So um, I think that the the waste movement will will take on quite a bit of uh, momentum. I think so, because I think it's a good cause. All right, Dana, we're going to take a break. We're talking to Dana Cowan. Uh, When we come back, I want to subject Dana to our 
wine list, and then I am going to twist Dana's arm and make her drink a little wine and tell me what she thinks of it. So we'll be right back. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. We're back. We're back with my guest, Dana Cowan, and I want to subject Dana to our wine list. But before we do that, I just wanted to talk to her about her radio show. Dana is now a radio podcast personality. Dana does a show on the Heritage Radio Network called Speaking Broadly. Tell me a little about the show. Um, So Speaking Broadly came about because I tried to think of the most interesting people that I wanted to interview on air. And at the end of making like a 25 person list, I thought, okay, so what do these people have in common? What does this tell me about? They were all women. They were all women. Really? Yes. And there was a, there were a smattering of men, but not so many men that I thought, Oh, did the title precede that revelation? No. So I I looked at the list and I said, oh, well, these are all women. And what even more than that, these are women who do not have obvious jobs. I have a fascination with careers and what people choose to do with their lives because from the age of 23, it sounds like my career path was very seamless and in a way it was, but I was... Vogue out of college. Hello. That was good. And it was, and it seems like, oh, it's all media all the time and that's so easy. But... You know, there's a lot of stops along the way where I was thinking, am I doing the right thing? So I'm very sensitive to other people's concerns about their careers. And so I wanted to do a show that helped expose some of the really cool things that people do behind the scenes that aren't as well known in the um, food and wine industry. Is it the majority is in food and wine or you expand because you want to and you have to? You stay within the field? I try to stay within the field because... There's so many different jobs that are right in this industry, but of course you could apply them if you, to entertainment or you know a, a book editor, a lawyer, well a farmer you can't <laughs> to right. another field, but um, social justice, um, 
etc. How do you, like for my show, when I look to book guests, you know, what are the relevant topics, people, um, things going on? How do you figure out guests? I like them to have something uh, newsworthy. But after 21 years at Food and Wine, where every single story that I approved had to hit, I set the bar, but there were five marks every story had to hit. You didn't I'm, have to be that. I don't have to be that. You know, I'm like, right. this person is interesting. It's more they intimate. They do is interesting. This is going to be fun. Let's interview them. So uh, basically, if someone has a good life story and has a good um, job story that I think will inspire other people, um, they're a great uh, potential guest. So the show is on Heritage Radio Network. It's called Speaking Broadly. It's on live every Wednesday at... At noon. At noon. And of course, it's available on the Heritage Radio Network website, iTunes, Stitcher. Um, You should check that out because Dana knows what she's talking about. And when she talks to people. (laughs) All right. Um, I wanted to mention something. We don't have to get into it, but I it, it's admirable and it's important that people like you serve on boards that help in the industry. And you are on three boards. Um, just, and I'm begging you to buzz through, but quickly name them and, you know, what what they do for the well, community. We, we can... Um Stick to two. Okay. I, I'm on uh, the board of City Harvest. Right. That, Very well known. Uh, helps uh, fight hunger, and I launched uh, a program there called Skip Lunch, Fight Hunger. That if you give ten dollars, um, you can help feed. You know, I think it's like I used to them. It's like twenty four hungry children for a week. It's it's extraordinary what they do because they basically pick up from a place that has too much and give it to um, a place where they can turn that food into meals for hungry people. So that's City Harvest, and I'm on the board of Hot Bread Kitchen, and Hot Bread Kitchen provides uh, bakery training and skills training for um, low-income, essentially women, because mostly women, baking skills, and then helps them um, find employment. And they also have an incubator program. So what I love about what Hot Bread Kitchen does is they give people the skills to um, find a really good job and a well-paying job. And then I'm fascinated by food incubators. I went to do a a tasting of all the Incubies food. And, um, you know, it it was great. Ethiopian or, yeah, foods from all over the world. Sounds great. Um, So that's City Harvest and Hot Bread Kitchen. Yes. Two good causes. All right, Dana, you ready for our wine list? Bunch of questions. Move through them quickly. Not because I'm rushing you out, no, but you fine. know the, you don't need to dwell on these. All right, so what is Dana Cowan drinking right now? Is it seasonal? Are you trying something? What's what's on the table? So um, I am very experimental. So I will. I'll try anything. Okay. Um, but I um, right now I'm drinking some sake because okay. I, I went to Japan and did a, a bit of a sake tour that I loved, and also um, Alice Firing has introduced me to some natural wines, and I had stayed so far away from natural wines because I'd hated them, the first ones that I tried. But now, just with her encouragement, I um, have 
been interested in natural wines and been delightfully She can steer you surprised. to the right stuff. I, I mean, and that was great because, again, Megan Craigbaum, who I had on my show, she made this passionate plea for wines without crap in them. And yeah. I was like, you know what? That makes so much sense to me. I, I actually need to get on board. Sometimes someone says something and it's a light bulb. I'm like, I'm with you. I hear you. Brooklyn is ground zero for the natural. <laughs> the, the raw wine fair is coming here for the second year in November. So it's a big deal. But there's some inconsistencies. But you have the right guide on the journey. All right. Tell me your favorite wine and food pairing. Is there something that... You go out of your way to put together when it's together. I mean, does anything? I, I actually think that champagne is a great pairing with almost anything. And because I'm like a little bit of a ninny in terms of pairing, like, ooh, I might get this wrong, and I never go wrong with bubbles, I'm a total bubble for all. Did you listen to my other shows? No. Because we don't let people say champagne and oysters. <gasps> you don't? Oh, I no. didn't say that. But, but champ- said- here's what's come up. Champagne and popcorn, champagne and pizza, champagne and fried chicken. And you're probably in a very good way, not a follower, but a good way, the third or fourth people that said champagne and everything. Everything. The most underappreciated wine. So that's a great answer. Do you, with all the cooking and cookbooks in 21 years, do you have, like, a favorite food or dish? To, to make? To eat. To eat. Um, I love fried chicken. Okay. I, I so love, when it's done well. I, yes, I, I absolutely love fried chicken. And the, that is true that I wish that I loved something that was good no matter what, but I don't know what that food would be. Fried chicken's a good answer. But fried chicken, I just love fried chicken. I think when it's done well. And I think a nice bottle of champagne cuts through a little degrees. Tell me and give me as much as you want on this and as many different places or not. Your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. Now, you're a New Yorker, so you could start with that. I'm sure. I'm not sure. I'm positive. You've traveled. Yes. So, but tell me... Tell me favorite restaurant that has a skew towards wine, wine service, wine environment. Um, So every family birthday for the last, I don't know, 10 years maybe, um, we've gone to uh, Le Bernardin. And of course, the food is fantastic. But we, we drink Aldo Somme's own wine. So the sommelier's own wine. And he's a little reluctant to pour it, not completely, but he doesn't want to be pushing his own wine so much. Right. But each year... He's very gracious that way. Very gracious. And each year we come back and we say, you know, Aldo really... Pour some more. Pour some more. Pour some more. A gratuitous plug, Aldo will be on in two weeks. Ah, fantastic. He's the best. So Le Bernardine is really top of the list because the food and the wine I mean in credit and Aldo Sam is you know a rock star can you give me one more sure I mean yesterday I was at um, La Compagnie des Vins Sur Naturel and very um, hip cool wine bar and Good it food. has a great vibe to it and I found out one reason why some of the the furnishings it has a very special look it has these yes. great Tables that look Dark. like they're made out of tiger's eye, which they're not, but it looks like tiger's eye. And it has a beautiful color, like a, it's not a teal, but it's like a darker than teal. And these brass um, legs, thin, skinny legs on white marble low tables. So you feel good. This and is then, the, the design Dana we're listening yes. to. <laughs> um, but I just think it's part of the aesthetic. You sit in this little bucket slipper chair and you drink a 
perfectly chilled glass of wine and you just you're in the ideal place it's not a big the um the bottle list is huge yeah but the and, and varied but but the by the glass list is perfect it's 10 choices that's just enough for me and very knowledgeable servers you're spot on with those two choices what about you may have the answer to this you may not so i'm not going to press you too hard when you ask a wine guy this you know he'll oh do you have a favorite all-time wine do you have a wine that was it a birth wine or the wine at your wedding or kids i mean there's something (laughs) um i think that Often the, the wines that have the most resonance are the most are the ones that have the deepest memories to them, which is why you're saying a birth wine. Right. Whatever. So um, my favorite wines are the Sinsky wines, because I've spent um, a lot of time on that vineyard and with the Sinskys, and I'm deeply familiar with their philosophy about wine. He's a biodynamic grower. I- exactly. His wife is very food driven. So of course it's perfect for me right. because the wine but is are incredibly food friendly. And Maria Sinsky is a fantastic cook. Uh, Rob, a great sort of visionary winemaker because he's been making these biodynamic wines for quite some time. And so whenever I open one of their wines, I feel like I'm home. You know, you settle into the wine. Yeah. It's a wine I know. It's a wine I'm happy and comfortable with. I think that's... Across their range. The whole reason why that's a favorite wine is terrific. We had Robert on as a guest at the Charleston Wine and Food ah, Festival. Fantastic. And I said, we have to do a whole show with you in the fall. He goes, can't bring my daughter to college. When I dump her off, I'll talk to you after. So that was a nice thing to hear. All right, you're going to a party. You're going to bring a wine for around 15 bucks. Not much more. If you want to go less, that's fine. <laughs> Can you, you could tell me specifics or the types. Can you give me a red and a white? So, um, not your field of expertise, but no, tell me what you sure. feel and know on this. Right. Well, um, what I do is what I always recommended people do at Food and Wine who were unsure. It's it's about your wine store, right? Because I could tell you a wine, and the wine that I say, the people listening, they're like, but my wine store didn't have that. So I don't recommend specific wines, but um, I do always go and I try to go to different wine shops because different wine shops have different expertises. So I live on the Upper West Side. So 67 Spirits is near me, Wine Spirits is near me, um, Acromeral is near me, um, and sometimes I'll travel to a wine shop, you know, just to get a completely different point of view, particularly on the less expensive bottles because it depends, like, what deal did they get? You know, what did they broker? And you can find these incredible things. So I would say, so for me, it's all about the strategy. And the strategy is... um, play around with the wine shop, play around with the person who's there and say, I'm looking for the bottle that's $15 and under. And you're never going to get, right? You're not going to get a Pinot. You're not going to get something um, American. You're going to probably end up... There are certain things in that price range. Right. But you're, and you, you know, so I would like head towards Spain because I feel like I'm going to get a great value in Spain. And so I would like direct someone towards a location and um, I think you hit every right point. And I think the idea of identifying a local wine store, befriending the guy. You also talked about multiple stores, traveling, different types. I think you need to express what you like. And I think the advice from me also is, listen, I think you could walk into a wine store and know that it's a crappy store or walk in and say this is a hip little place. I would guess and tell you that the hip little place, the guy's curating stuff, 
and he could lead you down that right road. So I think that's, that's the right answer for uh, most people to do that. So that's good advice. All right, we're going to wrap this show up with our last segment, which is our weekly wine sip, which, yippee, goody, we get to drink wine. <laughs> so every week we taste Do you mean the- we can't tell everybody that we've been drinking the whole time? Ah, they don't care. Um, every week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip this week, we're going to taste a vintage Napa Cabernet. Um, it's the 2000 Philip Togni. The wine retails for about 100 bucks, so it's not a cheap wine. It's a typical Napa, a little overpriced, but a very terrific winemaker. Current vintages are available at better wine stores for around that range. Philip Togni is highly respected. Um, he's been making wine since the 80s. It's a mountain wine on Spring Mountain. Hmm. Um, this particular wine is a 2000. It's a classic example of a good winemaker in... Not an okay, but sort of a bad vintage year. And I've had it before, and I know it's a good wine. I just want to see how it's showing now. So, Dana, let's you and I taste it. First, we go through all the vitals. We look at the color. It's still pretty deep, you know, purple. It's not bricking on the edges for a 17-year-old wine, right? Yeah, the color's pretty. Pretty good. Garnet. All right, so let's throw it up to the nose. Tell me what you're smelling. Dark fruits. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it it seems sort of classic to me. It is it is a Bordeaux like wine. You're right about that. All right, let's throw it over the tongue. Let's talk mouthfeel first. Mouth coating. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's it's actually a little um, less mouth coating than I would have expected. Yeah, that's the vintage, but it's a fairly big wine. It's big, but I find it has a lot of bite. It's incredibly tannic, and that's the knock on this wine. And wow. seventeen years later, that's part of the vintage. It's also take a whiff and a sip. It's also very herbaceous and green, which is another indication. Of that, you know, vintage. Right. Vintage. It feels like it has, you know, the fruit is a little bit suppressed, bringing up the... Very dry, very tannic. So it's, it's so dry. So if I was going to um, eat something, like, I would need something... A bloody so, steak? That's exactly what I was going to say. So if I, I served really need you delicious tomahawk chops cut up, you know, a bunch of other things and served you this... It would be I pretty good. I wouldn't notice. Right? Not worth the money, though. But I absolutely would not drink this without food. Like, it is not, it's not pleasurable. Food and wine on this one. Yeah, totally. Not just wine. Yeah. Wow. So, I think we would pair this with big, bold foods. Juicy, right. bloody and meats, barbecue would hold up to that. Actually, it would be fantastic with barbecue or something spicy. Yeah. Because it would probably like, bring out the spice the that looks like, a little bit dormant in there. The tannins and all of that. But like it would kill like a pork chop. Like A pork chop would die. Yeah, the like white... Chicken. The whitish oh meat of a... Yeah, chicken Fish, would kill. Fish, Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do we like this wine? It's okay? Uh, it's not my thing. It's 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 not showing. It also sh- doesn't feel at all balanced to me. It's not. It's the vintage year. Yeah. If you know when I'm you sorry. Come, I mean, I don't mean to. I know no, the no, no, no. When awesome, you come but... back on the show and we drink a killer year, you'll see the difference in all of that. 
All right, so we would pair this wine, obviously, with barbecue and, and red meats that would sort of complement the tannins and the, uh, the dryness. Um, Dana and I barely like this wine, and we agree that it would, if you served it straight up, it wouldn't, you know, show well. So it's a good food wine. But you could cook with it. Hundred dollars right, in the pot. There you go. As a wine guy, I would say don't stay away from Philip Togney wines. Just stay away from off vintage years, which is you know often the case with everyone. Do you do you find that um, most of the most the most talented winemakers can do something in an off year, or do you think that's if actually- I brought you wines from Napa, from less known winemakers? It, it, the tannins and the dry it would be so off-putting to you yeah this is a guy that's able to raise yeah. the game in a tough year so i mean people just won't buy those wines yeah. and that's why i brought it in um all right we're going to wrap up the show if you have a question wine happening or event hit me up at sam at the grape nation that's sam at the grape nation.com follow us on facebook at the grape nation We'll post Dana's wine list answers on our weekly wine sip, uh, on her weekly wine sip uh, answers um, on our site. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and Twitter at BenRuby. And check out our new website. We just put up a new uh, webpage, www.thegrapenation.com. That's www.comthegrapenation.com. Chock full of show info, guest info. We'll also put Dana's wineless choices there and the wine that we drank. Now, Dana, where can we find you on social media? I'm at FW Scout. That stands for Food and Wine Scout, but it doesn't have to. uh, Exactly. Well, food, wine. Food, wine. Two things that I really love. So Dana's at FW Scout. Both Twitter Twitter and Instagram. Instagram. Please follow her. Her travels take her to a lot of cool places. Um, the radio show, Speaking Broadly, on the Heritage Radio Network uh, at noon on Wednesdays. And more importantly, available anytime on podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, and our website. Um, your book, it's a very long title, so I'm going to make you say it. It's still out there and a terrific you know, idea, concept book. The, um, the short version is Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen. It's, it's a book about how I failed in, in the kitchen and got chefs to, to help me. So it's great for any beginning cook or any cook who wants advice from great chefs. It's a great book. I, before the show, I made sure I skimmed through it just to get a sense of how it feels and looks and who some of the people were. So if you're in that position where you're not a great cook but you want to up your game, that's a good book that'll help you. All right, I want to thank our guest, Dana Cowan. Thank you to our engineer, Vitor. Welcome back. And everyone at the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Sam Ben-Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.